Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the I Want to Be a Producer podcast, sponsored by Flying Penguin Graphics, audio production by Kieran Nemont. And here's your host, Curtis Brown. Hello, everyone, and welcome to I Want to Be a Producer, the podcast for emerging producers and creatives wanting to know how it all begins and how to get where they're going. I'm your host, Curtis Brown, and I am joined, of course, by our audio engineer in South Africa, Kieran Nimont. Hello, Mr. Brown. How's it going? How are you, sir? Oh, now we both say that at the same time. Oh, good. Perfect. <laughs> That's what we want to do. Well, I'm guess good, what? Man. We're I'm not. Good. Oh, good. I was about to say, we're not re recording this. We're doing this in one shot and we're calling it a day. Uh, Kieran, man. The people, the, the people were asking, and by the people, I mean, it, really no one was asking, but we got a pretty big guest today, man. We do. It's we all got, thanks we, to you. It's all thanks yeah, to well, you, man. Well, no, no, I know, but I'm just saying, man, like, we got the creme de la creme here with this guest. I mean, I'm not saying that none of our other guests were creme de la creme, because they are. I mean, that's why they're coming on the I Want to Be a Producer podcast. Hey. But what I'm saying here is, is we've got a really exciting episode, and a really informative episode, too. So make sure you check the show notes for our guest socials, as well as our own. But in this episode, we speak about Broadway financing, why the musical film works, what a producer should look for in a partnership, what you should know before pitching a studio, when you should get in contact with studios. Um... It's just, it's just a really special episode. It's a really cool episode. So, Kieran, take it away. Our guest today really needs no introduction, but if you're coming on this show, you better believe you're getting one. Luckily for me, this one wrote itself. Why, you ask? Because our guest is an Academy Award-winning film, television, and Broadway producer based in Los Angeles, California. He's a graduate of NYU's Tisch School of the Arts, where he studied to become an actor. From there, he approached student council to put on a show, where they told him he had just two weeks to put it on, and he still sold out all performances. From there, the rest is history. Some films that he produced that you may or may not have heard of, which you've definitely heard of all of them, are American Beauty, which won a total of five Oscars, including Best Picture, The Bone Collector, Milk, another one of his Oscar-nominated films, Nothing to Lose, Big Fish, Down With Love, and The Forgotten. As a television producer, he has been the executive producer on Pushing Daisies, which won eight Emmy Awards and was nominated for Best Television Comedy at the Golden Globes, Side Order of Life, Traveler, and Emily Owens, M.D. As a Broadway producer, he was the lead producer for Big Fish and currently has three musical films in the work, which are Spamalot with Paramount Pictures, Fiddler on the Roof with MGM, and one original musical intended for the screen. He won an Oscar, BAFTA, Best Foreign Film Award, OFTA Award, PGA Award for American Beauty, helped men in musical theater all across the world with their rep book, bringing the song Fight the Dragons to Life, and said his mother is on Instagram, which according to his Twitter, can't be good. Welcome to the I Want to Be a Producer podcast, Dan Jinx. I, wow, that was that was a great intro. I loved that. That was uh, terrific. Well, thank you. I, you know, I've been uh, studying you and, and watching all <laughs> interviews, et cetera, et cetera, for quite a while now. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm really happy that you were able to make some time for us to come on the show. I'm happy to be here. Oh, great. Well, so I want to know, I know I mentioned in the intro that, you know, you produced your university show. So tell us a little bit about how you became a producer, because I know you were working in New York as an actor as well. Well, you, uh, I'm going to expand a little bit on what you, you talked about. I, was, uh, uh, I did a lot of acting in high school and in college. And um, like a lot of drama schools, NYU had sort of a black box space where students could produce their own shows. And somebody dropped out two weeks before they were supposed to go on. And, uh, uh, and I said uh, to the student advisory council that shows the shows, I said, well, can I use the space? And they said, well, you would literally have to put a show on in two weeks. And I said, well, Saturday Night Live does it in one week, so we'll have two. And uh, I, I picked a, a great topic. It was sort of a, a, 
a variety show about life as a drama student at NYU, done very much in the style of SNL. And like SNL, uh, I had to deal with everybody that anything that wasn't working, we were going to cut the night before. And people kind of got excited about that sense of competition. Let's see what was what wasn't. And I did it truly because I thought it would be fun. Uh, what I didn't realize was that it would be also incredibly gratifying uh, that uh, the show was uh, uh, very successful, so successful that the same group, the Student Advisory Council, came to me and uh, and asked me to do another one. I, the first one was in the fall of my senior year at NYU, and the, and the second one was in the spring of my senior year at NYU. And the second one also came off really well. And I realized that I enjoyed putting things together. I enjoyed working with uh, uh, various writers and uh, sort of helping to try to mold something. And um, I thought I would produce theater. So I got out of college and I did, you know, the, found the jobs that I could find uh, that would hopefully lead to producing. I was a production assistant on the workshop of a Broadway musical. I was, I assisted uh, the producer and general manager on a, a failed revival of a play that was that ended up closing out of town. And then I went to work for a Broadway ad agency where I, I learned a lot. Um, the, the ad agencies are uh, usually where all the different producers will meet. So there were lots of conversations that had nothing to do with advertising that I was privy to at a very young age. I went to work there when I was 21, 22 years old. And wow. Um, I only worked there until I was 24, but I worked on a lot of shows. And I learned that to produce on Broadway as a lead producer, you needed to be able to raise money and not just raise money, but raise millions and millions and millions of dollars. And I didn't come from big money. I didn't know people with a lot of money. And I just didn't see a path to doing that. And um, uh, a guy who was my uh, one of my best friends from college and is still one of my best friends, he had a job in development. He was working for a, a, a producer, a TV producer in New York that had some financing. And I knew theater really well and I knew playwrights really well. And obviously a lot of the, the writers, um, a lot of the better writers in New York come from the theater. And he would ask me about writers. So that's how I learned, okay, maybe I could maybe I could get a job in film or television on the creative end of things. And those are usually called development jobs. Mm -hmm. And I found one. I found one working for a, a, a producer in New York who was not a, not a great producer. I learned a lot of what not to do, uh, but I learned a lot. And, and that was my film school. And uh, that's how I got into uh, the world of movies. He moved me to Los Angeles. And then I went to work for another film producer. And I worked for him for a while. Um, and uh, fortunately, a script that I found uh, it took a while, but finally it, it got made. And by that point, I had enough of a relationship with the writer-director and my boss sort of wanted to keep me. And for a variety of reasons, he allowed me to be a full producer with him on that movie. And so that's how I sort of became a, a, a producer. Wow. You know, and I actually read an article that you wrote for The Hollywood Reporter where you said that the hardest part of the hardest part of the job of producing a Broadway show was raising the money and that I've produced seven feature films and four television shows and I never had to raise a dime and that this was a huge learning experience and that you said I would have never made it without the help of my general manager, Wendy Orshin, and a, as a wonderful co-producer named Ryan Furman, who is a great mentor throughout your journey. So can you tell us a little bit about like a few things that you learned about raising money for a Broadway show? Well, I, I'm so glad you, re you mentioned Roy Furman. Roy is a legend in the theater. He has, he's a guy who 
has made, I, who knows how much money he's made, I, I'm, uh, but an awful lot of money. And he loves theater. And he has probably poured more money into Broadway shows than anybody in the last 20, 25, 30 years. And I, w- I met him pretty early on in the journey through my general manager. And I invited him to the very first reading that I ever did of Big Fish, the musical that I produced. Yeah. And he was a cheerleader from the very beginning. And I wasn't even at the, at the very first reading. I was not looking for money. I just wanted to know where do you think we're in a good direction? Are you like where we're going? Um, and he was like, you know, where, you know, can I write a check now? And I said, no, 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 no. And he really liked that. And we became friends, uh, I think, really from that moment. And boy, did he help me a lot. And one of the things that he said, and this is so this sounds so obvious and it was not obvious to me. People want money. People want to invest in the thing that they can't have. They want to invest in the thing that that if you if you say to a Broadway investor, uh, you know, we really don't need any more money. That's who. Then then they're like, but I really want to give you my money. Whereas if you say, you know, I only have twenty percent raised, then it's really hard to get the money. And so as more as the more you 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 give the impression that you have this hot commodity, that does not come naturally to me. I, I'm such a I try to be honest about everything, every layer of my life. I don't like to 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 uh, to lie ever. And I realize that it's not lying to somebody, but it's very much positioning, putting your best foot forward. Uh, mm. and, and believing in what you're selling, believing that you have a hot commodity that they're going to make a lot of money if they invest in this show. And um, uh, anyway, so I, 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 I was able to do it. And uh, uh, there were a number of people that helped. And certainly Roy Furman was one. And my general manager, Wendy Orsham, was another who, who just helped me a lot. The guy who, um, who uh, sort of runs the Nederlander organization, a guy named mm-hmm. Nick Scandalius, he was also... Uh, uh, a, a big, big mentor through the process. He was somebody who would just give me the very honest uh, uh, response when, you know, every once in a while you feel like people are bullshitting you and they don't really want to tell you the truth. And I right. felt Nick would always tell me the truth and he would do it in such a kind way. Um, one of the more beloved people in the theater and somebody that I was very fortunate to to get to work with on Big Fish. I think that's all you can really ask in someone is just to their transparency, especially when it comes to to the art and something that you really believe in, that's something that you love is, is just be honest with me because it, it works out for everyone if, if the honesty makes the product a lot better, doesn't it? Well, and it, what's interesting is that when you're producing a show, there are a lot of people who are employed by that show. And all those people want to keep, want, want, they want to stay being employed by the show. And uh, uh, so Big Fish, um, we did uh, uh, two readings and a workshop and we did an out-of-town tryout. I wanted to give the the, the writers, um, uh, Andrew Lippa wrote the music and lyrics and John mm-hmm. August wrote, wrote the book. I wanted to give them every chance to take a step back and look at it and make sure they were happy with it before we got to New York and the critics in New York. And we opened in, uh, uh, our out-of-town tryout was in Chicago in a very, very big theater um, called the Oriental. I think it may have changed names since then. and. And we got positive, encouraging reviews in Chicago. They certainly had some criticisms. Box office wasn't great in Chicago. And right. that was a big sign that, oh, we're, we're, this is going to be a harder to sell show than we realized. 
Um, my general manager was coming off of two shows in Chicago, but they were that had both been star vehicles and, and bigger titles. And Big Fish, uh, while it's a movie that a lot of people love, not everybody knew the title. Right. And it's a, it, it's a, it's a hard musical to describe the plot of in a way that's going to make somebody say, oh my God, I have to see that. And right. those, were, those were challenges that we hadn't really thought enough about until we got to Chicago. And uh, once we realized, oh boy, we're not selling as many tickets, even though we got some positive reviews, we were obviously on the one hand working on the show, but we were also really working on the ad campaign. We basically uh, throughout the ad campaign after Chicago. I, I loved the ad campaign in Chicago. I thought it was just beautiful and vocative. And, uh, but I'm, uh, I'm not an idiot. When something's not selling tickets, we realize, okay, we, we have to try something new. And I have both posters that Chicago and Broadway uh, framed in my den. Uh, uh, and and they, you, they, there's nothing about one that resembles the other. Uh, mind you, we, we still didn't solve the problem. We got to New York, just changing the artwork, uh, uh, wasn't enough to get people to see a show that that if they didn't know what it was and somebody hadn't told them to see it, they weren't going to rush to see. And uh, that was my my big failure with Big Fish. So switching gears a little bit to more now the film industry. So how did you get in contact with studios to pitch with? Like, I feel like that's one of the most challenging parts is getting your foot in the door. I mean, you hear that with actors too. It's like, if I only had an audition. So is it like in Merrily Roll Along, you know, there's that famous line, you know, we're banging on doors shouting, here we are. I knew you'd like that because you're a music theater nerd like me. Um, I, I know opening doors very well. I know, I know. It's so good. Um, so is that what you were doing? Like, what advice would you give to our listeners when trying to get in contact with a studio? Well, so I think a lot of people, and this goes for movies, film, uh, um, movies, television, Broadway, that people have this idea that they can just sort of become a producer without learning the job. Right. And uh, it's, it's, I try to explain, you're not going to apply to be the, the CEO of Coca-Cola without knowing something about the beverage business. It just, it would be an odd move of Coca-Cola to, to, to make. And in and, and the same way that a studio is not going to finance uh, 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 a movie being produced by somebody who's never produced a movie before or been around uh, enough before, they, would, they may say, okay, you have this fantastic script, but we will need to partner you with somebody who does know how to produce a movie. So that's what I learned for working for other producers. I worked for one producer, again, starting at age 24. I worked for one producer for um, about three years. And then I went to work for another film producer and I worked for him for five years. And during that time, I, I was involved in quite a few films. I was in a lot of sets. I, uh, I really saw a lot of how the business worked and I got to know people at all the studios but as I mentioned earlier, the best thing that happened for me was I was able to actually produce uh, my first movie, which was a, a comedy for uh, Touchstone Pictures, which was then a division of Disney. It was a comedy called Nothing to Lose with Martin Lawrence and Tim Robbins. And, and that was really, by, by the time that happened, yes, I worked for um, uh, another producer who had been in the business for many, many, many years more than me, but uh, he knew like, at that point, he sort of knew the chairman of studios, but he didn't always know the people who are making the decisions. Right. And I was friends with 
the guy who was the president of production at, at Touchstone, and um, as well as the uh, a guy named Donald DeLine. And then uh, as I also was friends with the guy who was the executive that I brought the project to, to a guy named uh, Todd Garner. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the fact that I had those relationships when it came time to send nothing to lose out, I, I uh, uh, those relationships were very useful to me. But you know, it, it is one of those things that when you're in the business for a long enough period of time, you you do get to know most of the the key players. Right. Um, but you know, if 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 somebody's coming from from uh, uh, you know Milwaukee and says, "Hey, I want to be a producer," uh, you know, my advice would say, "Okay, that's fantastic. You should be a producer, but first you need to learn the job." So. Either go work for a producer, go work for a studio, go work for a network, go for, work for some mini production company uh, so that you know what you're doing so that when when there's a problem on the set of a $60 million movie, you understand how to solve that problem because you have enough experience in other films that you know what the uh, the answers are. Yeah, and what the smartest move is because, you know, when you're, t- you're talking in big dollars now, $60 million is a lot different than a $5,000 short film or whatever, right? So it, it's completely different. It's a completely different venue. But what are a few things you'd tell someone before they were pitching an idea to a studio? Uh, well, understand the marketplace. Understand what that studio is looking for. Um, mm. uh, if the what studios are looking for has changed dramatically in the last few years. It, it used to be that that uh, every movie was made by by one of the big studios, and by the big studios, I mean Paramount, Universal, uh, Disney, uh, uh, Sony, um, Warner Brothers. And now, uh, while they that they are still making most of the movies that end up in movie theaters, pandemic aside, um, they are uh, they're making fewer movies, and they're making more movies that are going to be geared to an international audience. Right. I'll see if I can say this in the sort of simplest terms that that uh, studios like to mitigate their risk. And it used to be that the the DVD market was so valuable that if a movie didn't make a lot of money at the box office, it would make it up in DVDs. Well, obviously that market is completely gone. But what has emerged instead is the international market. A movie can make, uh, you know, more than twice its 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 uh, uh, its money at the uh, international box office. So studios are 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 really trying to pick films that will play to that. There, you know, there are more action films, there are more films based on uh, comic books um, uh, and, and, and known IP or intellectual properties are, are a much, much easier sell. It's very hard. Like I made uh, American Beauty at DreamWorks. That was a completely original story. And it was very hard to get made then Mm-hmm. I don't think that a movie studio would make it now. I think if now, uh, if that script came along, it would get made at um, the other place to make movies now, which are the streaming services. And those are, are those places are making a lot of movies. Netflix is making a ton of movies. Amazon, HBO Max, Hulu, Apple. Uh, those are all um, really good, viable homes for uh, making movies now. And they're, they're doing a volume that is, is kind of uh, astounding. Well, they, I think it was Netflix. They, they put out that ad that they could release a movie every day, every week, and they would still have more, more movies, which is crazy. I mean, yeah, they're just turning them out. They just have so much cash flow, like the apples and the, you know, they have $200 billion like in just cash that they can just, you know, and, and that's, I guess, would be a huge advantage for them is that they can take more risks on stuff like that, right? 
Absolutely, and they're also making movies that that no one else was was making. Um, That's right. Uh, when I was a little kid, uh, John Hughes movies were a, a big deal. Um, uh, you know, th- things like. Um, uh, uh, Home Alone and Ferris Bueller's Day Off and and uh, uh, Breakfast Club and and that that sort of young adult uh, uh, the, the young adult movies went away for a long time and then Netflix discovered there's actually a giant audience and so now Netflix will make several of those a year and now now Amazon is doing those making those and HBO Max is making those and that's mm. uh, so uh, to answer your 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 question uh, before you pitch something you should really think about uh, who you're pitching it to and making sure that it, they would actually be open to that kind of a story right. um, so that you're, you're not just wasting your time and, and their time, which I, I think that, you know, there's some people say, Oh, let's just try anything. Cause you never know, but you also don't want to hurt your own reputation because you bet you're going to want to go back to those people a year later with something else. And, and you want to have left a, a good impression. Correct. And I'm a huge musical fan, like a huge musical film fan. And I know obviously you are too. I mean, you've got a few in the works. So they're basically the reason and I got into what I do. And right now, I guess you could say that on screen, this has been the most popular since probably the 30s when Fred Astaire and Julie Gardner were dancing and singing across our screen. So obviously you have a love for musical films. So why do you think the musical film works? Well, I'll tell you, I, I think that people like to be taken out of their world. They like to be taken out of their, uh, they, want, they want to ex- escape somehow. And what's interesting is that it's, it has gotten harder, uh, pre-pandemic, it is, has gotten harder to get people to leave the house to go see a movie. They'll do it for a big Marvel movie. They'll do it for something that feels like an, a, a giant sci-fi event like Avatar. But what's been interesting is that they'll do it for a movie musical. They will leave the house to go see The Greatest Showman. They'll leave the house to go see Les Miserables. Uh, um, that's been really interesting to see. And studios are, are, are keenly aware of that, that, that those kinds of experiences are, are, are important in that uh, they also play to uh, a big audience. They play to, you, there's, there's, there's safe movies to take the whole family to. You can take grandma and also the kids want to go. And, and that's, right. uh, there aren't that many of those movies anymore that everybody can go see. Um, so I, uh, I love movie musicals. So I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that, that the movie musical is doing pretty well right now. Obviously, Disney has a, a real business now and taking some of their animated musicals and, and doing live action versions of them. Yes. Um, but a lot of studios are very open to, to musicals. And I think it's, it's because people will leave the house to, to go see them. And, you know, for studios, it's all about, does it make sense for them business-wise? Um, and uh, it, it seems to. And even some, some um, uh, like things like Bohemian Rhapsody, which is, you know, sort of a, a musical, and Rocket Man, sort of a yeah. musical. Uh, those movies did very well. And I think it's just so interesting, too, that historically, I mean, you know, you had the stock market crash, but... The 30s is when the musical film was booming the most, is when, as you said, when people wanted to escape because they couldn't handle the realities of what the world were. I always say that about Come From Away, too, because, I mean, I was lucky enough to workshop that show, and I just remember standing there thinking and kind of how the way the world was working, and I remember standing there, and I remember talking to David and Irene going, you guys have got something here. You guys have got a really big show. And, of course, that show hit really, really big and became really big when the Trump administration came in, and I'll never forget there was a New York Times cartoon when 
they were passing by uh, Donald Trump in his car, whatever was passing by in New York uh, in Times Square and saw the big the big billboard. And he was like, what's this show about immigrants? And I was like, that is going to that right there, man. I was like, that will sell you your tickets right there, right in a second. I was like, I just think it's just so interesting how that works. Absolutely. Something I noticed while researching you is how many projects you have in development. And underneath that category is the word option. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about how exactly they would want to option something? Say if they have a book or whatever. Um, that's a good question. There are various ways to option something. I have never personally paid for an option for anything other than other than the when I had to turn Big Fish into a Broadway musical. But I was I produced the movie, so it was actually that was a, a simpler, slightly simpler process. Um, I had to make a deal with Sony Pictures, and as well as the author of the book, uh, Daniel Wallace. Um, they, they kind of co- co-controlled that. Um, but uh, uh, when I have, uh, like, there's a uh, a book that I am working on uh, at HBO Max. It's a YA novel uh, called Camp about a, um, uh, it's a, a sort of a gay love story at a gay summer camp. And so I... Uh, I was sent the book in manuscript form as were uh, a handful of other producers. And I responded very positively. I actually brought a, on a, a, a writer. And then the author of the book um, wanted to talk to various people who had shown real interest. Uh, so his agent set up a, a series of uh, uh, phone calls and which I'm always really, really happy to do. Mm-hmm. And fortunately he decided to go with, with, uh, with, with me and with this author. And then we, um, uh, so then I brought it to several different uh, streaming services and HBO max was the one that stepped up the most enthusiastically. So they then optioned the book on, on behalf of, of me and the, and the writer. Right. Okay. So I guess it's unique per per each time that you're doing a different project. Exactly. Yeah. Sometimes if you know if there's a relationship that you have with an author, they'll give you a free option. Sometimes writers will option something themselves. Um, most of my experience, uh, I've gotten an, uh, a handshake agreement uh, while I will shop something to a, a, a studio or a streaming service. Right. So... I want to play a game. It's called Radio Play, where we get to know you, Dan Jinx, the person, rather than you, Dan Jinx, the producer. Sound good? All right. All right, let's do it. What time do you wake up in the morning? Uh, six o'clock. Favorite lyric from a music theater song? Um, would it spoil some vast eternal plan if I were a wealthy man? Current favorite television show? Oh, uh, uh, it's a sin. A moment you wish you could relive? Oh boy, a moment from my life I wish I could relive? Yes. You know, I, um, it sounds so geeky, but when I won the Academy Award, it was such an outer body experience. Uh, I, uh, to do that again would be just a wild thing, and maybe I would be a little bit more in my body. <laughs> How many windows are in New York City? How many windows are in New York City? Take a guess. That is a trick question. I don't know the answer <laughs> to that one. <laughs> okay, you find a million dollars in a backpack. Do you keep it or turn it in? I would turn it in. Do you believe in love at first sight? No. What does a person need to be happy? Oh, uh, you got to be happy with yourself first. What advice would you give your former boss? Oh, <laughs> treat your employees better. <laughs> <laughs> um, country you'd like to visit? 
Oh, uh, let's see, country I'd like to visit, um, meaning I've never been there before. Um, uh, Ireland. Mm. Do ghosts exist? No. Do aliens exist? I think so. On a scale of one to 10, how good of a driver are you? I only ask this because you're in LA. <laughs> uh, give me a nine. Best advice you've been given? Oh, um, best advice I've been given. Um, you know, I, 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 I'm going to go back and say the advice I said earlier that Roy Furman gave me about how to raise money and about how to position yourself. Uh, uh, it's all about positioning. Make them, make them feel like they, they, you're giving them a commodity. Famous person you've met who had the biggest impact on you? Oh, uh, probably Steven Spielberg. The last gift you gave someone? Uh, oh, I gave uh, a friend of mine's birthday the other day. I gave him the new Mark Harris book about Mike Nichols. I'm wanting to read that. I'm actually thinking of ordering that. That's funny that you say that. Um, a piece of art that changed your life. Oh, a piece of art that changed. Oh, okay. I'm going to, well, a movie that changed my life is a piece of art. Um, when I was, uh, this plays right into this whole conversation. When I was very young, I saw a documentary called That's Entertainment, which is all about MGMs and and, their, and and mostly about movie musicals. And I had not seen the vast majority of those and I was just blown away. And it made me want to go out and see, you know, 30 movies that were all featured, had clips featured in That's Entertainment. Oh, that's so great. What's your biggest phobia? Oh, uh, oh gosh. Is, it, is insomnia phobia? <laughs> Can be. Uh, it is on today's show. All right. Uh, what, what, what is one of your pet peeves? Uh, people who are late. If you could commission someone, living or dead, to create a piece of art for you, who would you choose? Oh, boy, that's a fun question. Um, well, living or dead, I would say William Shakespeare. You win the lottery. What's the first thing you do? Uh, you know, I'm such a Broadway geek, I would probably pr produce a, a giant, all bells and whistles production of Follies. You know, it's so funny. That's the first thing that I say I would do, too. I'd be like, I'd be going straight to New York and uh, producing a show. All right, that's Radio Play. That's great answers. I loved your answers. They're so great. I always, you always kind of see a different side of someone during that game. <laughs> I think it's I, by the way, you ask me tomorrow, they might change, but anyway. Yeah. But hey, that's why we're recording today, right here, right now. That's okay. all that matters. So you said of American Beauty, a lot of your job was protecting Alan Ball's script. And I know you walked out of a meeting and Steven Spielberg had read the script the night before and he even stopped to speak out to Alan about it. So should this be a mains producer key job under the producer title, keeping the integrity of the writing? Or do you think sometimes maybe this should be, you should leave it and kind of let the studio say something? Uh, you know, I, I believe that it's the producer's job to uh, keep the, uh, maintain the integrity of the author's vision throughout the whole process. Uh, the studio is never going to care about a movie the way a, I think at least a good producer will. And, and that can mean various things. Um, uh, it, it, it usually will mean once a director is brought on doing everything to first to make sure that you hire a director that sees the movie the same way that, that you see the movie and ideally the studio sees the movie. And, uh, and, and then it's really supporting that director uh, throughout the, the, the process. But, but, but part of that is going to be potentially telling the director if, if you think they're not seeing something that they should be taking a look at. Right. And I actually know that Sam Mendes had just done Cabaret with Rob Marshall and Oliver, and I know Steven Spielberg had seen it. So, And he had never directed on film and ends up being like one of the only 
like six people in history to win an Academy Award for his feature film debut. So how did you know he was the right choice? And how do you choose your teams? Well, so uh, good, good question, but it all goes back to theater. I, uh, I had seen, uh, there had been a, a tour of cabaret that like came to Broadway that was not very good. And I, it was so fortunate that I had seen that. And I think cabaret is still maybe the best movie musical, certainly one of the two or three best movie musicals. And I kind of came out of this, this other revival saying, wow, uh, cabaret, just show the movie, don't show the show, uh, don't do the show anymore, it just doesn't work. So when Sam's production came along, I had a huge appreciation for what he had done. Mm -hmm. I also knew that he, because I'm a theater geek, I knew that he was kind of sort of the hottest director in London and had been for a while. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and American Beauty was a script that a lot of people were, were, were reading it was being sent out all over town. There were people would say, you know, oh, Steven Spielberg gave me the script to American Beauty, and and you, you know, I I, I don't want to blow the wind out of any store uh, sales, but Steven was giving the script to American Beauty to anybody he had a meeting with. It was just an easy. It was like, here, take this with you. Here's my business and card. So I would have a lot of meetings. Every agent was sending it to their clients because they knew we weren't going to hire, uh, you know, a five or ten million dollar director for this this film mm -hmm. and um uh sam's name came up on a list of people who read it and were interested and i just and so i i went to new york i, I brought my uh the guy who was my executive at dreamworks is a good friend of mine named glenn williamson he and i went together to see it and we both came out of it saying we let's meet with this guy and by then we had already met with maybe 20 different directors and sam mendes was so smart he was so articulate he he understood the comedy, he understood the drama, he just talked about the tone in such a specific way that uh, I, I really felt like he was the guy. And it was, a, but it was a bit of a battle. It was not, uh, it's interesting, there are a number of people that we had to work really hard to convince to hire Sam Mendes, who now take full credit for the hiring of Sam Mendes, which is very, <laughs> very Hollywood uh, uh, thing to happen, but uh, it is a true story. And I actually think I heard you in an interview speak that DreamWorks believed in American Beauty, but they did, believed in it at a very low budget. And I think that I heard you say that you went into the studio with Sam because you guys to made, it made him like look super tired because you guys were working like six days a week at 15 to 17 hours. So I was just I, I just think that's so funny that they end up taking credit for the thing that, you know, that you you were sitting there fighting for. There were certain people that always believed in the movie at, at, at DreamWorks. Um, I, Spielberg was one of them. Uh, Spielberg was such a fan of the process at project and he was so supportive and he was giving us, we were an under budgeted film and Steven Spielberg always believed in, in American Beauty. The guy who was my executive, a guy named Glenn Williamson, always believed in American Beauty. Those were the people that I specifically thanked in my Oscar speech. Mind you, there were a lot of people there who liked the film, but there were other people there who didn't believe in it and uh, or or who thought it should have been a very it was only like a 15 million dollar movie mm -hmm. but somehow in a, in a bit of communication that me and my producing partner were not involved in uh someone had said we can make this for eight million dollars and then when dreamworks themselves did a budget it came to over 12 million dollars and then it, so immediately they were sort of mad that it was costing more than somebody without talking to us had had promised so 
we were always a, there was always a struggle uh, financially while we were making the film. It was uh, uh, it was uh, we were challenged. Uh, mostly, we just didn't have enough time, so we were begging constantly for more time. Well, yeah, you guys, you guys like shot it really quick. It was like in, started in December and ended at the end of February, I think it was, or something like that, wasn't it? It was it was like a very very short amount of time. Yeah, we we ended up I think at fifty two days, but we started out at like forty two days, and they and where we, you know, it wasn't that nobody they didn't give us ten days; they would give us like a day, and then maybe they would give us two days, and then finally we 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 and and we ended up with really what we needed in the first place, Um, but uh, it was a little bit more complicated movie than it looked because those two houses that were supposedly right next door to each other didn't really exist. They were, they were out, there were frames of houses, uh, but the interiors were shot. The interior of one house was in Brentwood. The interior of another house was in Hancock park. These are different areas of Los Angeles. Yeah. 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 But then there was some interplay between the houses. So we had to sort of build parts of rooms in the shells on the, on the, what was called the, the Warner brothers ranch. Um, a lot of things took a lot longer than they probably appear to the average viewer who probably thought, oh, this, this house is right next door to this other house, but we just couldn't find those houses. So That's the beauty of making it, though, is when, you're, when you face a problem like that and you go, okay, wait, how are we going to do this? And that's, that's really the best part about it, isn't it? So you and Bruce Cohen launched your producing partnership, and three months later, you got Alan Ball's American Beauty in your hands, and you, know, you end up winning uh, Best Picture uh, for the Oscar on your very first film. So my question to you is, what... Should a producer look for in another in another producer if they're coming into a partnership? Well, so I, that's a really good question. I had listened to a, a, a book about producing from a, a producer named Linda Obst. Had had uh, I listened to her book on tape, um, and she had mentioned how when she chose a producing partner, she had come from the creative end and she partnered with a, a, a woman who was more the nuts and bolts, physical production side of things. Somebody else told me that uh, you want to, if you're going to partner with somebody, you want somebody who's not you because you already have you. So you want somebody who compliments you. Well, my experience was mostly on the development creative side of things. And uh, Bruce Cohen, who uh, we were friendly, we, we, we had done some um, gay activism work together in Los Angeles. Yeah. We didn't know each other really well, but I knew that he had come up uh, the physical production end of things. He had been a, an assistant director on a few movies, including a couple of movies for Spielberg, um, and uh, and then had been sort of a version of a line producer for Amblin. They would sort of they would develop a project and then put him on to be the set guy. Right. And, uh, and I thought, well, this guy has a lot of set experience, and that would really be a, a compliment to me, who I had just produced one movie and I had been around a lot of movies, but there were a lot of things I just didn't know at that point in time that uh, I, I thought that combination would be valuable. So my last question to you is, you know, you won the Academy Award fairly on early in your career, and I'm sure it opened a lot of doors for you and made things a lot easier, although show business can be very humbling, which I've heard you say before. But my question to you is, is you've achieved probably the greatest award in entertainment very early on. So what personal goals did you have when you were going through? What were your next steps? Like you kind of hit the home run first at bat. You know, what I decided then was um, that I wanted to create a body of work that I would be proud of. And that, that meant... Uh, producing anything is hard. It's just, it's just hard. It's, it's, uh, we go through periods where it's harder than other periods, but it's not, uh, uh, it is not an easy thing. It's not easy to get a studio to say yes to something. 
Um, uh, I decided I wanted to try to create a body of work that I was going to be really proud of. And uh, so it basically meant, you know, not doing crap, not doing things that I didn't believe in, not doing movies uh, just for the money. Uh, I, I thought, well, if I, you know, not that anybody thinks of me as a brand, but I, I wanted people to think, oh, this is Dan Jinx is producing this. It, it, I, 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 I'm going to, I'm going to read it right away because it must be something good. That's always been what I've longed for is to have that kind of a, a, a reaction. That's fantastic. I mean, Dan, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show today, giving your invaluable insight. It's I've I've learned so much. I know our listeners definitely have learned so much, and I'm so happy that you're bringing the movie musical more again. Keep keep going with the movie musical. I'm trying to do the same. I love the movie musical. It really is this utopian, amazing, incredible thing when you can escape in a movie musical, and I'm so happy that that I was able to speak to someone who's currently doing it right now. So thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate your time and we'll speak to you soon. My pleasure. Really fun. All right. Bye. Bye. This has been a Brown Stuff production. <laughs>